Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up This is the Church Politics Podcast Where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview We're not trying to be conservative or progressive We're trying to be Christian in the public square and I'm black as heaven I'm made in God's image Nobody can change my settings Amen. Hey man, cut off my knees And put an end to my search It's easy to sell your soul When you don't know what it's worth With your no good and camp You're listening to the and campaign's Church Politics Podcast With Justin Gibney A.K.A. Bishop Cooper's grandson That's me And the Windy City representative The baddest brother above The Mason-Dixon line My play cousin The right reverend Christopher Butler now, before we get into this, Chris, I want to see who's been here for a little bit. So the first person who can go on Patreon and explain to me why I call Chris my play cousin. There's a story behind it. If you've been listening, you should know it. The first person who can tell me why I call Chris my play cousin on a Patreon, that's patreon.com slash church politics, will get, we'll send you a shirt. So send us your address and all that stuff and we'll give. In fact, we'll say the first five people that can do that, we'll give them a shirt. All right. So get on that uh, so you can you can qualify for that shirt. Chris, as you know, and we're not even going to get into sports right now. Um, the Lakers are having their struggles. They, they got some they got some new guys on the team and all that stuff. But we'll deal with that later. Um, not that we have that much time because when the playoffs start, they won't be there for long. But there's something more important that I want to talk about, which is our new docuseries, How I Got Over, which is about, as we've talked about, uh, the importance and the role that uh, the authority of scripture played in the uh, history of the black church. And you were in that. Uh, we have two episodes that have been released so far. And we have what I think might be the best episode coming up next, uh, probably early next week. Chris, any thoughts on why people should get over to our website and campaign.org and make sure that they watch uh, our new docuseries? Yeah, I mean, I think if if you love great content, if you have any passion for history, black history, American history, church history, you should check this out. It is is really great stuff. I love documentaries and the way that they just get to dig into things that are that that are underexplained. And this does this. This is not copycat content. This is completely original stuff that I don't think uh, you would get anywhere. And I have to say, Justin, I think just the way I you know I seek out content and information. If it were available out there, I would know it, and it's not. So you should really go check this out. Yeah, it's not out there, man. And if you are at all fooled into believing that orthodoxy is a uh, white Western construct, then you need to watch this. Not only do you need to watch How I Got Over, you need to watch Unspoken, which was done by Jude 3, and you can get that on Amazon. You got to check those out if you're interested in, in black history and the history of the church and so on. Very good information. Well, Chris, we got a lot of stuff to cover today. Uh, I think we have some uh, some uh, conversations that folks are really going to enjoy. Also, after we get done with this, we'll have a conversation over our Patreon, which is for premium, the folks who are our, our, our patrons. Uh, and so check that out after this episode if you are one of our patrons. But as always, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Also, all those who give uh, small and large donations. We greatly appreciate it and wouldn't be able to do this without you. So as usual, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Chris, as you know, in 2008, America's economy crashed 
after financial institutions gave hundreds of thousands of people predatory loans that they knew would fail. Luckily for some of these banks and hedge funds, they made money from the adjustable rate mortgage payments. They made money from the reverse mortgages. And this den of thieves made money when people lost their homes. In 2008 alone, 3.1 million Americans filed for foreclosure. That's almost one in every 54 homes. Many experts claimed the banks were too big to fail, meaning that letting them be shut down would have too great of an impact on the U.S. economy. As a consequence, Congress passed the Emergency Stabilization Act of 2008, which authorized the Treasury Secretary to buy up $700 billion worth of troubled assets to restore liquidity in the financial markets. In other words, the institutions that caused the crisis were bailed out. The Americans who trusted the system were just trying to chase the American dream and lost their homes were not bailed out. And then check this out. No one went to jail. Chris, even though our cousin Pookie can get multiple years for less than $50,000, not only did they not go to jail, some of the executives who worked at the banks that received bailout cash got bonuses that same year. Citigroup, for instance, who received $45 billion in taxpayer funds, gave their employees $5.3 billion in bonuses. Chris, you know I've called this the greatest injustice of my lifetime. And for all those people who are always talking about we just have to choose a side, you should probably know that both Republicans and Democrats watched Americans get screwed. They bailed out the perpetrators. Then they barely tapped them on the wrist when they got the money, but refused to help Americans get their homes back. One of the main stated purposes of the Emergency Stabilization Act was to help Americans get back in their homes, but the provisions were toothless. They were weak as water. And here we are, with people still reeling from this 2008 economic crisis. Well, Chris, last week, the biggest bank failure since 2008 happened. Silicon Valley Bank, who serves about 50% of Silicon Valley tech startups, issued a statement that caused a run on the bank, meaning people went to the bank and just started taking their money out. And obviously the bank doesn't have everybody's money all at once. Apparently, they had loaded up on long-term bonds, which The Economist magazine called an unhedged bet that interest rates would stay low. When the feds raised interest rates, it was pretty much over for the bank. They had basically made some bad decisions and they paid for it. Now, something to keep in mind is that the FDIC insures depositors up to $250,000. So if you put your money in the bank, something happens to the bank, up to $250,000 of, uh, of your money will come back to you. It's insured. But many depositors in SVB had far more than that in the bank. So, for instance, Roku had $500 million in the bank. Uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen assured uh, depositors that all their money, not just the 250, but all their money would be covered. Now, Chris, here's the thing. The administration is not calling this a bailout. And initially, as I was debating with friends over this, over chat and things of that nature, I agreed with them. 
because this is a little bit different. The companies won't be saved. The shareholders and the executives won't be saved. So it is a different situation. But the more I thought about it, the more I continue to read and do my due diligence. I do think this that this is a bailout. Um, for one, the FDIC is going past the two hundred fifty thousand dollar mark, which is the you know which it is it, it ensures for everybody, and they're not following the general policy, which means that people could get possibly more than that two hundred and fifty once they figured out what to do with the rest of the money that the bank still had. Okay, but let me say this: before you shed a tear for these executives, these bank executives. There's something you should know. Many of them sold billions of dollars of stock before all this happened. And check this out. They took bonuses hours before the feds took over the bank. So they knew the bank was about to fail and they took bonuses, not weeks before, hours before the feds took over the bank. If that's not corruption, if that's not something that should be rescinded, I don't know what to tell you. I, I don't know what to tell you if folks get away with things like that. But also, we should know that SVB had lobbied lawmakers to weaken bank regulations so they could take the risk that led to the collapse. Chris, at some point, we've got to do better. Now, again, this isn't the same to me as what happened in 2008. I'm not as, I'm not as, I don't see it as pro as problematic that we are covering depositors and not you're not necessarily covering everybody else. But it's still a messed up situation that deals with a lack of regulation and just the unwillingness to hold folks accountable and really protect the American people who, at the end of the day, can kind of suffer and can have some consequences because of this. But go into it, Chris. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I. <laughs> I think that some of the the language and the coverage, uh, and and I think you you just did a, a great job of laying out what has happened here. But this sort of idea of um, you know, like what are the similarities and the differences between two thousand eight and right here? Uh, and one of the things that people are pointing out is that like here, you're not covering uh, the CEOs and the executives; you're just covering the depositors, and that's not what we did in two thousand and eight. But I, I think that that my I'm, I'm reserving some judgment because I don't think that we're at the the end of of this this moment in time, um, and so we'll have to see what the full implication is. But my my anger is is ready. I'm reserving it, uh, but is 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 right ready because number one, they they definitely tried to do what they did in 2008 over the weekend, find a bank to buy SVB. And preserve more whole executives and uh, other folks there uh, in the company. They did not let the regular FDIC process play out that would have, in a more controlled way, liquidate the bank. And then when we think about who the depositors were, I think that's very important. In 2008, the depositors were ultimately regular people in, with homes, right? Like those are the people at the end of the line here. I think that one of the key differences here is that 85% of the the deposits in SVB were beyond that $250,000 FDIC uh, coverage. 
So the depositors, for the most part, you know, if 85% of your deposits are beyond FDIC, that means that the vast majority of the accounts in the bank have more than $250,000 sitting in there. And I don't know, I, I'm not in everybody's finances, but, you know, I, I would like to think that I'd, I'd be good if I said that the majority of people like listening to this podcast right now don't just have a bunch of accounts with more than $250,000 just resting uh, cash in the bank, right? Um, so these depositors are very, very different sort, right? Like these depositors are big tech corporations, very wealthy tech uh, people. And so saying it like we're coming for the depositors to me is not exactly the same as saying that we're looking out for the the average everyday person, because that doesn't seem to me to be who had deposits in this bank. And and so the structure of this particular bailout, it looks different, but it feels to me like it comes from the same place. It sounds to me, and I'm, I'm nobody's economist, and if you're listening to this and you are an economist, feel free to, uh, you know, to go make comment on YouTube or jump into our Patreon. Love to have the conversation. But just from a layman's view, it sounds a little, if not destabilizing, certainly beyond the pale, some of the actions that are being taken. The, the, not only are, are, is the FDIC backing up these these deposits at these two banks uh, that failed over the weekend, which I do want to say something about that. But the Treasury actually set up a whole new program over the weekend to allow banks in general and the deposit holding institutions to basically uh, cash in on, on some of their Treasury holdings, because that's one of the things that made this SVB deal so bad. But they can bring their Treasuries and, and they'll be valued what the Treasury calls at par, which means that they'll be valued like they haven't lost value, right? So they're just, they're just going to pretend like we haven't raised rates, you know, pretend like this stuff hasn't lost value, and we'll let you borrow against it um, at at par. Uh, and they the the Treasury has set out twenty five billion dollars of the Treasury Exchange Stabilization Fund, right? Um, some of the things that. I think you have to dig a little bit to see in reporting is that there are only $38 billion in the Treasury's exchange stabilization fund. So that means that 65% of that fund has been leveraged uh, for banking institutions. That's 65% of a fund that's in the United States Treasury that's backed by the full faith and credit of the United States, which church politics podcast listener, if you don't know, you and I, the American taxpayer, are the full faith and credit of the United States. And so that's one way where I think that this is putting taxpayers in the, you know, it's, it's not a direct bailout, but it's putting taxpayers in the sort of um, the potential chain reaction. The, the second piece is that the FDIC deposit insurance is actually there to protect everyday bank customers like you and me and that's why it only goes up to $250,000. The deposit insurance fund that the FDIC holds based on the fees that they charge to banks, um, last quarter of 2022, it had $125 billion in it. Last quarter of 2022, SVB, that one bank, uh, had $212 billion in it. Again, I'm not an economist, but I can recognize that $212 billion is more than $125 billion. And so to say that you're going to back all of these deposits with, um, you know, the FDIC, yes, they're going to liquidate the bank. 
who knows how it's going to work, but you're putting regular everyday people in the potential chain of events. And for me, for any person in the treasury, any person in banking, any person in the administration to stand up and tell American people, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. This is not going to overstretch the FDIC, know where the banks are going to be impacted. We've solved the problem. To me, that's a little bit disingenuous because that's what you wanted us to believe a week ago about the SVB, right? The Silicon Valley Bank was not on any kind of watch list. They were not being you know, looked after in any way. The assumption was that they were doing just fine, uh, and now they're not. So it seems to me, uh, and I'll you know um, take a pause after this, but it seems to me that the administration is trying to simultaneously argue to the American people that, uh, you know, like this collapse is, is, is isolated. We've, we've fixed it. Um, and it's not going to impact anything else. Uh, but at the same time, you want us to believe that it is, that it was so significant that the bank was, was so significant that if we don't fix it, uh, if we don't do anything, then the whole economy was going to be impacted. And so to me, there's some dissonance there. Either this thing is really tied to the broader economy and the way that we're leveraging a lot of our tools and resources toward this one event seems like a little bit of a panic um, and, and, and maybe an overreach. And time will just have to tell. Uh, but it seems dissonant to me to say that, you know, it's isolated. It's not connected. It doesn't matter. We got it in a bottle. Just trust us. Nobody worry about anything. And then say, but if we didn't do it over the weekend, there was going to be this major crisis. Yeah, a couple things. And and I think breaking points, which we've urged people to watch instead of uh, the corporate media, I think breaking points had some really good segments on this. Uh, one thing that Crystal said was it's interesting how when something happens on this level, there's an immediate response from from Congress. And things immediately happen. But if your average person is going through something and hurting or whatever, it takes this long process to actually get any kind of uh, help to them. I mean, you can even look at what happened in in Ohio, like the time that it took for people to pay attention to that when people could be sucking in, you know, cancer, all kind of different things. But this happens immediately. So that that is to to pay attention to. But I think it's also important. and, And you say this. To say, look, we're, we're not experts, right? We're not claiming to be bankers. We're not claiming to be economists. But that only means so much because we are citizens. We do have to, we do have to weigh in on these things eventually, and we all need to do our homework. So don't, I would hesitate to just pass things on just to this, you know, just to the people who are the experts. You certainly need to listen, listen to people who are educated in this area, who have done their homework. But you also have to come to some conclusion to some extent in order to be an informed citizen. And you want to do that with kind of go, going over uh, all the information. And, and, and as we all been talking about having this sort of uh, media hygiene, right? Um, me, neither, neither me or Chris just went to one source. We kind of looked at different sources to see what was going on. The other thing I'll say is that I think a res- the response of, of somebody who's saying, no, this isn't as big of a problem as this. Okay. The depositors aren't just your everyday American. They are folks who own businesses. But a lot of this would have to do with payroll. So folks couldn't even get to their payroll to pay people who we may see as more, you know, everyday citizens who the deposit insurance was meant to help to some extent. Right. Then, as you touched on a little bit, people would also say, well, if this happens and we don't do anything about it, 
then you create a, a, a situation where people lose trust in other banks. There's runs on other banks, especially within this industry. And we end up having this cascading uh, uh, effect. Right. The, the issue that I think we're bringing up, though, and is very important, is the potential moral hazard here. What kind of incentives are we setting up? They took chances and pushed against regulations that caused this to happen. Now, granted, they're not necessarily going to save the bank, but is the hit that they're taking, especially when they sold all this, sold a whole bunch of stocks and when they still got bonuses, does that give people the disincentive or banks the disincentives to not do things like this? Or do we make the landing so soft that it's worth the chance? And and honestly, when you're doing strategy for a business or, or a lot of other things, you're weighing the benefit and the cost. And if the if the federal government keeps lowering the cost of these bad decisions, then you get more bad decisions because moral hazard basically means you can do things without consequence. And so that obviously creates a bad situation. These are some things we have to think about as we engage this within the context of what happened in 2008 and how both sides of this conversation failed the American people multiple times. They failed the American people in not regulating the banks and these hedge funds so that they could take people's homes and and just make money off them. And if a home wrecker is a book, book you should read if you really want to know about that. So they failed people when it came to the regulation. They failed people in their response and not getting people their homes back. And they failed people in the lack of prosecution. And there are some people in the White House that decided they did not want to prosecute certain people in certain industries. I'll let you figure out who that was. It may not matter to you because of the person's uh, party. It may not matter to you because of the person's gender and, and uh, and their race. But it matters to me because I know that I have family members that lost their homes because of this predatory lending. So I don't care what color somebody is, what uh, party they're in. This was wrong. And it hurt a lot of Americans. And a lot of Americans are still reeling and hurting from what happened at that time. I'll let you take us out, Chris. Yeah, I I, I think that, you know, these points are, are really strong. And, and I just, you know, when it comes to like, because people will say, oh, well, we were, you know, doing this for the regular average everyday person because of payroll. Uh, and that type of thing. But if if you've run businesses, like you you probably do, you definitely should, right? Have other deposit accounts, have other insurances, um, and these types of things to help uh, make payroll. Number two, the liquidation process, they call it the orderly liquidation process, does eventually get get most of the money. Uh, I think the figure that I've seen is that about 90%, the deposits ultimately would be returned. Now, without government government assistance. I I used to run a business. I currently run a church. If we have a a week where we don't make payroll, looking like we can't make payroll, you know, you got to call people and have a tough conversation. You got to you got to figure it out. You know, ultimately, you, you build a loan different. Else, you take a loan from somewhere else, right? You you have to figure it out. And a lot of the people who were some of the biggest voices for this particular action on the part of the government are the same voices who will say, "Well, we cannot invest in a child tax credit. We cannot invest in any kind of 
uh, housing investments to help uh, regular everyday people. And I think that's the part where, like I said, my anger is agitated. Like I, I, I don't want to say that I'm on fire about this right now, but my anger is certainly agitated just based on like, like what Proverbs 31 tells us to do, right? Like speak up for the voiceless uh, and to plead the cause of the poor uh, and the needy. And this is wrong. Like if, if you describe the government activity over the weekend, you would think that you were talking about like a, a player that's getting ready for the NFL draft, right? Because it was fast. It was aggressive. It was agile. Man, um, it really can work for us, huh? <laughs> right. It, it was <laughs> somebody. Right. And, and it's like, when do you see government respond to the needs of everyday people with that same sort of dynamic? Like we, we, we never do. And so that's the part to me that is most akin to to 2008, when you break it down to to the level of principle, it is this willingness of the government that is supposed to be of, for, and by the people to respond so quickly, so well, and so effectively to the needs of corporations uh, and very wealthy individuals and not to the needs of working class and poor people in this country. And, and that is a narrative that has been expanding virtually all of my life. And at this point, it is it is it is almost to me like the one of the primary arcs. I won't say it's the main thing, but it's one of the primary arcs of public life today uh, is just this this massive, uh, uh, irreconcilable um, uh, sort of bifurcation when it comes to how we treat, think about, talk about, respond to corporations and the wealthy versus how we think about, treat, talk about um, the working class and the poor. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's really, really not right. And and the idea that these folks are always, that everybody's too big to fail, bro, That's you, that that means you don't really even have to make an argument. You can say, oh, well, there's nothing we can do, even if it makes sense or not. Well, there's nothing we can do. Well, there was something that you could do when you were supposed to be regulating and dealing with securities issues and all this other stuff that you didn't do that allowed this to be too big to fail, which is against really what the market should be anyway. So a whole lot of issues. But what I did not want y'all to forget about is what I think, again, is the biggest injustice of my lifetime is what happened when those banks got that money, got their little bonuses. And then people didn't even they I mean, I'm not going to say the government didn't try to give people their homes back, but it the effort was they didn't try hard to get. And it, it, I, I, I don't think it's overblown to say that people in, in like our age group, like we had our lives defined by that moment, right? Like those, those are the realities uh, that impacted. I mean, my, my, my immediate nuclear family was impacted um, by that whole uh, housing bubble. Um, you know, my, my mom worked in real estate. So in the real estate you know, market went under that, you know, that, that dragged under her whole business. Right. And so many people in our age group have that kind of story. You know, and I remember when my mortgages started going up and they're like, Whoa, what's going on? They didn't even think yeah. it was possible. Yeah. Right. I mean, they weren't instructed that that could even happen. I'm paying a thousand dollars one month. The next month I'm paying 2,500. I, I yep. can't pay that. What am I supposed to do? I remember that time yeah. um, and how it affected people. And, I know people who still haven't recovered. 
be quite honest. So, so, and, and when I look back, because I did take a moment, uh, and I know we got to get out of this segment, but I did take a moment and look back at some of the real time press coverage, because that's that's another thing that, that I have to point out quickly is like we got to be careful because we live in the age of the internet, and like by Sunday night, Treasury had websites up about like these new programs that they had just instituted to serve these banks, but they were incorporated into the website like they'd been there forever. The Wikipedia pages were updated. The, you know, this this new program was was written into the Encyclopedia Britannia. It was as if it was always there. And this was stuff that was just got created over the weekend, right? And, and so I went back and looked at some of the real-time press coverage uh, from 2008, and some of the language was similar as that thing was unfolding at, at various steps. You know, it was, we, we have a plan. This is what we're going to do. It's all fixed. Nobody worry. Right. So, so the, the language of today where it's like, oh, well, you know, it was just these two banks. Now we got a solution. Don't have to worry about it. I'm just like, stay vigilant as this thing unfolds. Crazy stuff. Yeah. Just just pay attention to what's going on, guys, and, and remember how people reacted in this moment because it may come back up uh, when it's time to vote. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction, the Ann Campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the right Reverend Christopher Butler. Chris, I'm, I'm, Chris, I'm a little upset. Um, I, last I talked to you yesterday, you said it was like a blizzard and very cold at, at very least in, uh, Chicago. I'm here in Atlanta in March with a vest on with a, you know, with a big vest on. Um, and I'm trying to understand what's going on, man. Um, is man, it still I cold out there, Chris? It is cold here. I, I thought maybe you had your vest on cause the air conditioner was too hot in the office. Nah, man, I got this lumberjack vest on because it's freezing outside in Atlanta, and I oh, no. I need some answers. I guess is what I'm getting at. I need I need some answers. But anyway, it come from here. We still got it. So. Yeah, yeah. We we need it. We need a change. But I'm, as I'm looking in the forecast, it's not coming anytime soon. So, Chris, let's let's get into this next subject. You know, we we talk quite often about how we live in a very dismissive and tribal culture. Uh, we too often disregard or oppose certain information based not on the merits of, of the information, but based on who said it. 
or who said what. Right. We, we will form our opinions based on whether or not we like the messenger. And I think that's a bad idea. I think that's a bad way to go about it. And sadly, COVID was a perfect example of just that. Most of our opinions were formed based on who was stating certain information. Right. Uh, for instance, once Trump mentioned the lab leak theory, everybody who dislikes Trump automatically thought the lab leak theory couldn't be true. It was impossible. Now, although we're not huge friends of Trump on this, I will say that we were able to push against that because you may remember even when we were doing those live uh, when the uh, pandemic first started and we were doing those live broadcasts, me, you and Michael Ware, we were telling people to slow down on coming to these conclusions. Um, but that's really the way that it went. You know, folks on the left said it couldn't be the lab leak theory because Trump brought it up and Trump brought it up in a in a in a bad way. Um, and I also have to admit that Dr. Fauci was going along, going around saying the same thing. But there were other experts, the ones who didn't get kicked off of Twitter, because some of them did, who disagreed that it couldn't be the lab leak theory. And what I want to ask you all today. Is. Is it really outlandish that covid might break out in Wuhan when there's a lab developing and testing covid in Wuhan? Now, whether. Trump said it or anybody else said it, that doesn't seem very outlandish to me. But at the time, depending on what cable news you watched or if you watched The View or whatever, it was just something that was impossible and couldn't happen. If not just a racist proposition altogether, which might have been the most ridiculous uh, response to it. Well, uh, and we may have mentioned this before, the Department of Energy and the FBI are saying that COVID likely leaked or likely escaped from a lab and guess where Wuhan. Okay. Now the first thing that I, I, I posted this on social media and the first thing that somebody said was, well, what does the department of energy have to do? What would they know about that? Well, the department of energy is tasked with lab safety. So they would know quite a bit about it. You might want to check what different departments do before you start making comments like that. Now, once Trump made those comments and people who didn't like Trump had an issue with it, Dr. Fauci kind of benefit, benefited from that. He became the Batman, the Trump's Joker. But what I don't think a lot of people realized and what it took us a little minute to figure out was that he had an interest, it seems, in leading us away from the lab leak theory, especially since he personally overturned Obama's ban on gain of function research, which is the type of research that people believed caused the pandemic once everything leaked out. Uh, the other thing is that his or the organization he was leading sent money to the Wuhan lab. Now, he says they didn't send it for gain of function. There's going to be some, you know, uh, investigation into that, but it still happened. And Dr. Redfield, who recently gave his testimony in, in Congress, said that this is a very gain of function is a very risky type of research. And that according to what he knows, it has never stopped the pandemic. Never. But some people wanted to keep it moving. So they got rid of the band, the ban. And here we are now here, Chris, is a new revelation. And I'm going to push it to you after this. On February 17th, 2020, a group of experts published a paper about the origins of COVID. 
ostensibly this was disproving the lab leak, even though it was kind of early, it was disproving the lab leak. Months later, Dr. Fauci used that paper to dismiss the theory. Right. Now we find out that Dr. Fauci himself convened those experts on a conference call, commissioned that very paper, edited and gave final approval for the paper. I don't recall him mentioning that he played this role in it when he was presenting it to everybody. But now we know based on documents that have come out. Now, this is what I because we're talking about messengers and what we listen to. This will be painted as a Republican witch hunt because there are certain people who like Fauci and are going to want to protect him. And I, I just want the truth to come out. We don't know the whole truth, but I can almost guarantee you it will be painted as a Republican witch hunt. And let me tell you something. The Republican Party, especially folks like Jim Jordan and all that, are not above that. So believe me, this is not a defense of them right now. But there's more to what's going on in this investigation than just a partisan witch hunt. What I'm urging you all to do is to take a closer look at what's going on, because this is getting kind of deep. We shouldn't really, you know, even have to be talking about this. We should really just be trying to discover where things came from. But now we have to investigate whether there was some kind of cover up or whether there was conflicts of interest. I can't give you a conclusion on all of that. But the fact that the lab leak is looking more and more likely, and we were told very distinctly that it was outrageous for anybody to even suggest that, makes this more and more fishy. Now, one thing that is happening is, kind, and this is bipartisan, we always love to talk about some bipartisan uh, unity. Congress recently voted unanimously to declassify COVID documents, which may mean there are some people they're going to have some very serious questions to answer. And I remember when Fauci was going head up with, with uh, Rand Paul and all that. And people were hitting me like, Rand Paul, is this? Y'all might need to apologize to my man. Because it sounds like Paul was up. Paul was on to something. But again, we dismiss certain people based on their party, based on their identity, and based on whether we like them or not. And sometimes we don't get to the true message. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, is such an important segment. You cannot outright reject people because like who they are. You know, I, my grandmother would say even a broke clock is right twice a day. So, you know, just because, for instance, it's Rand Paul asking the question doesn't mean that the person who's supposed to be leading public health uh, interventions for the United States of America doesn't need to honestly and fully answer the questions of a sitting United States senator, even as a United States senator, uh, that you don't necessarily agree with on a lot. Not only can we not reject our, you know, sort of opponents or what have you, but we also have to be a little bit more skeptical of the people who are supposed to be on our side. I will never, ever forget. It was very early uh, in the pandemic. And Dr. Fauci was on CNN with Anderson Cooper. And my wife was watching it. And I was in the room. But at the end of the segment, Anderson Cooper says something along the lines of, like, I think I speak for all Americans when I say that we're just so blessed to have you, Dr. Fauci. And my my wife always brings it up because I, I turned to the TV and I was like, who is Dr. Fauci? And why am I so blessed to have him? Like, and, and that's that's when I first started like researching. And so I learned about 
like some of the the work that he had done around the HIV AIDS crisis, and it's like that, that was not all beautiful and great. Throughout the process, I was you know a little bit more Fauci skeptical, but it, I, I think sometimes it's it's like well if if Anderson said it on CNN, then yeah we must be blessed to have Dr. Fauci, and, and this is you know he's a he's a public health professional, a virologist a person who I'm sure has done a lot in his life and his career uh, to contribute to the betterment and well-being of the United States and of mankind in general. But you can't just take everything that somebody is saying, especially in an unfolding moment like we were in, uh, in the moment of COVID, and just unquestioningly accept what, what anybody says. And let me say this too, Chris. I don't think anybody would have a problem with him have been being wrong at some point. Right. Like to say, man, he got that wrong, but it was in the it was in the heat of the moment. He was just trying to figure it out. The problem is he starts off with the noble lies. Right. You don't you don't need masks, which really they just didn't want people to get mad. But just you can't you can't do that. So you start off with the noble lies. Then you get caught in this lab leak situation, which if you would have gotten it wrong in your in, in your estimate, that's fine. But it looks like you had reason to misdirect everybody. And then when I listen to the answers that he gives in interviews now, I'm like, man, I hope that where this is leading is wrong. I hope Dr. Fauci was really doing his best and working in good faith. When I listen to the interviews and how he responds to when he obviously got something wrong, say that's what I thought at the moment. I got it wrong. No, but he will defend any, every, any and everything he said, even the indefensible. And that's to me what is making this again more and more fishy, even though even though again the, you know the corporate media is not covering it. Yeah, and I, I would say on the media side, you know, it's 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 like we're talking about. I think in in the general sense, uh, as individuals, right? Like we can't just dismiss messages because of the messenger. I, I think in the context of the media, the the question is more like, is there a willingness to lie about stuff? Because you think it's more important to destroy somebody who you're against. Because smart journalists don't become dumb overnight. And, you know, I'm no fan of, uh, like, frivolous lawsuits. Justin is an attorney, and he, he wouldn't even put up with that. But I think it would be interesting to see a similar discovery process to the one that's playing out at Fox um, through the Dominion lawsuit play out at CNN. Uh, when it comes to to COVID coverage and and lab leak stuff, because some of the some of the skepticism was so obvious, right? Like you you started the segment, Justin. I mean, you have a lab in Wuhan doing gain of function research on COVID viruses, and then a COVID pandemic starts in Wuhan, and we're like, "There's no way possible." How, how gullible are we? <laughs> How go- and this and this one thing in a book I was reading, uh, untrustworthy, which is a very good book. It was talking about that we go from being very, um, not listening to anything and being very obstinate and not hear- hearing certain stuff to being completely gullible with the stuff that we want to hear. I mean, if you think about the fact and just how it all lines up, that can never be out of the question that it could be a lab leak when the lab's in Wuhan. But somehow we were convinced because we dislike Trump so much or whatever. And so we just need to, I think we're all susceptible to that. We need to have disciplines in place and accountability with each other to prevent that. The last thing I'll say about this issue is instead of asking Fauci tough questions, 
if you watch the, some of the interviews that he did this weekend and before, last weekend, I should say, and before, instead of asking him tough questions and pressing him, they'll ask him, well, how are you feeling with all the um, threats that you're getting? Threats are one thing, and I, and nobody should be threatening anybody with this. But when somebody's supposed to be answering some questions and be held accountable, you don't give them a chance to, to play victim. If we need to protect him and, and you need to send people to protect him, that's great. But when we're trying to get to the bottom of what happened, now you're just right now you're just distracting us from the issue. And and to your point, these are journalists who know better than that. Uh, and there's there's something that they're trying to protect. And I think it's unfortunate because it hurts it hurts the public discourse. And what they don't seem to understand, and they're not dumb, is that people see that. The people know when you're avoiding going in on somebody. And it's catching up with them, and you can see it in the data. Now, the other thing that I saw right before we got on is that even though it's not being covered very well, 60% of Americans believe lean towards the lab leak theory. And I think that's over 50% of Democrats, too. So even with all these subterfuge and all this other stuff that's going on, people are still seeing that this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. It, it took a while. I, I, think people, I think people are turning more and more to other channels. Because like you were just saying, what Fauci's interviews over the weekend, I think it's becoming more and more painfully obvious that the unfortunate reality is you really can't trust corporate media. Um, and if there's an individual who will only go on corporate media, um, probably can't trust them either. I mean, it's, it's you know, Fauci at this point needs to like go sit down with um, somebody for their sub stack Go on breaking points or hey, he, Joe he, Rogan. You or, think he'll go on Joe Rogan? That's what I was going to say. You think he'll go on Rogan? Probably go, not. Go, go uh, to the Young Turks. Go go somewhere. Like you know, what I'm saying like do something other than go sit down for a kumbaya moment with uh, with, with folks who 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 really are not going to uh, ask you great questions. Like and and I think this is a moment because especially with that sixty five percent number for us to just keep pressing on that like i w- I would love it like to get to the place where even if we do have to depend on corporate media for a while because of their resources, where the public is so fed up where it's like we want Fox running the democratic uh primary debates and m s n b c doing the republican primary debates <laughs> like um you know what I'm saying like it, it there's got to be some sort of adversarial relationship between the press and the powerful that's just supposed that's how it's supposed to work in order to help our democracy uh function in a healthy way and our our discourse to be healthy yeah and 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 you can't trust the fbi when they do when they go at trump and then say well well they you know they don't really know what's going on with with covid they i mean they didn't say it was 100% sure sure i know they said it was uh, low confidence whatever that means but it was enough confidence to say it publicly knowing that that that, that was going to have a serious yeah, FBI was like mid confidence and the the energy department was low confidence right um but nobody has any confidence um which, which sounds and, to me like I'm going to do that almost to bail somebody out right if I'm going to say yeah. it then I've come to somewhat of a conclusion right mm-hmm. and I can say okay it's not high confidence it's almost like somebody comes to you say can you say that's with low confidence so it's not it's not such a big deal like, yeah, I can say that, but I'm still going to make it's a major it. accusation, right? Like you, right. you, you don't go to your spouse and be like, you know, yeah. I got a low level of confidence, uh, but I think you know you're stepping out of me. 
It's like, exactly. But with a low level of confidence, right? Like you don't, uh, you don't make that type of accusation publicly, you know, unless you, you, you think it's pretty, it's pretty good. And, and again, the problem is not the level of confidence. The problem is you can't look at the same agencies. Like if the energy department comes out and says, you know, we need to fix global warming. And then you're like, yeah, we absolutely do. And then they come out and say something that you disagree with about COVID. It's like, well, who is the energy department? They don't know anything. FBI only has a low level of confidence. And can we trust them anyway? You can't shift like that, right? Like, I think that's what we're trying to say to our audience. It's like, be able to listen to people who you disagree with on a lot of things. And even people who you agree with on a lot of things, listen closely enough to to see and understand when there are things that are a little bit suspect so that you can look into it a little bit more. Yeah, that's exactly right. And although we've gotten things wrong on this podcast, and that's for sure, and hopefully we've been honest about that, I think we were in pretty good place on this one. I think very early on, we didn't jump to one side or the other. And we said, wait, hold up. It was in Wuhan. They're doing the, you know what I'm saying? Like we kind of started putting it together. And so I will give us a, a pat on the back for that. And again, guys, this doesn't mean that Trump got it all right. He certainly did not. There are certainly things that he made it much worse than it had to be, especially his name calling and all that stuff. What we're saying is that's aside from the actual facts and the merits of what the of the lab leak and so on. And we've got to be able to discern between those things. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and Christopher Butler. Chris, I don't know if you read the book, but I read uh, Hillbilly Elegy, which is the autobiography of who is now uh, Ohio Senator J.D. Vance. And I'll be honest with you, I, I enjoyed the book. Um, after reading the book, I kind of looked J.D. Vance up, uh, read some of his work, you know, listened to some of his his talks. And I actually thought that he was kind of what we needed on the Republican side of the aisle. I thought that he was a type of Republican that a lot of Democrats might be able to support. Um, and then he ran for uh, the Senate and magically he becomes, uh, this Trump sycophant, uh, magically he becomes taught. He starts talking about issues in ways that I'm like, what in the world is going on? And, and I'll be honest with you. I lost a lot of, respect for J.D. Vance during that campaign because of how he conducted himself. But if if part of the message today that we're talking about is listening to the message and not necessarily the messenger, then I think we need to listen to something uh, uh, that, that J.D. Vance said uh, recently, and I think it was last week or the week before. J.D. Vance, obviously he's the Ohio uh, senator. We know that there was a, a train wreck and a chemical spill in Ohio not long ago in East East Palestine. Right. So what Vance did in, in a hearing about that issue was he challenged his own party when it came to regulating the rail industry. Vance argued that free market Republicans who are opposed to regulating the rail industry. Are being hypocritical. And here's the quote that he made at this hearing. He said that. This is an industry, the rail industry that enjoys special substanti- subsidies that almost no industry enjoys. 
This is an industry that enjoys special legal carve outs that almost no industry enjoys. This is an industry that just three months ago had the federal government come in and save them in a labor dispute. It was effectively a bailout. And now they're claiming before the Senate and the House that our reasonable regulation, our reasonable legislation is somehow a violation of the free market. Well, pot meet the kettle because that doesn't make an ounce of sense. Do we and he's asking his colleagues this. Do we do the bidding of ma- of a massive industry that is embedded with big government? Or do we do the bidding of the people who elected us to the Senate into the Congress in the first place? He said something like, and this is paraphrasing now, he said something like, Are we we're saying we're the party of the people, but we need to show we're the party of the people? That's a word, JD Vance. And I'm I'm gonna give you, although you know, I have I have a problem with how you ran your campaign. I think my man makes a point. For the rail industry, with all the subsidies and carve-outs that they get, to be talking about the free market is a lot. Now, there's a saying that, you know, some folks are free market when it comes to gains and socialist when it comes to losses. And that sounds a little bit like what the, you know, what the railroad is doing right now. Chris, speaking to number one, your thoughts on J.D. Vance and then also his statement here. Um, and maybe he maybe there's maybe, you know, maybe there's space for redemption. Maybe he's trying to do something different. Talk to me. Yeah, I mean, I uh, certainly, you know, I have to say I did not read uh, Hillbilly Elegy. Um, and so I, I, I learned a lot about J.D. Vance, Vance's brand of politics through his Senate campaign, uh, you know, so I, I would have to say not that much of a fan. But I, I do know, have not, not even have read the book, I still saw Vance uh, as a person coming from a little bit of a different place when it comes to something that I think is a core question for our generation uh, politically, which is how do we begin to take back government for the everyday person. When I talk about the everyday person, I'm talking about the working class person and the poor and take that power away from large corporations. I, I think that my sort of broader assessment on, on government is, is important here because I think that government is the only entity that is large enough to really put a check on corporations when corporations are trying to devour this, like the souls of like people and society in a, in a, in a vast number of ways we won't get into it here. So any, any Republican that's going to help with that fight, I think, is an important leader. Any Democrat who is going to help with that fight is an important leader because I think both of these parties uh, have been complicit in the kind of corporate capture uh, that we currently experience uh, in our government. And so it was it was incredibly refreshing to see J.D. Vance sit in a Senate committee and actually make the argument. And I think you were at the very appropriate quote because that is the fundamental question: Is the the Congress, the the, the both houses of the Congress, are, are they going to do the bidding of the large corporation or the thing that is right for the people? I think that uh, in, in in the back room, the the discussion that Vance is going to ha- have to have, which I think is 
you know, it's going to be a, a tough talk is at the end of the day, was it the people who sent us to the Congress or was it the corporations <laughs> that sent us to the Congress? And I think there are going to be still too many members, uh, unfortunately, who will be in back rooms saying, J.D., maybe the people sent you to the Senate, but the corporations sent me to the Senate. <laughs> so, you know, um, that part. Uh, but it, it, it was it was nice to hear a Republican senator make that argument in, in Senate chambers. And we need to remember the senators that don't vote for this regulation after people's lives were put in danger because they didn't regulate properly. Now, I want to be very clear. I, I believe I'm really a distributist, but I believe in well, smartly regulated capitalism. I think socialism sounds great. I don't think it ever I don't think it ever works out the way that people think it does unless it's a very small country that's uh, monolithic and all that other stuff. I think I don't I don't think it works out that way in many instances. But guys, we have to hold people accountable. And that includes the business folks. That includes people in office. And the question is, are we going to do it? Are we willing to do what's necessary? Or are we just going to complain from time to time and and not hold people to what they said? Um, And again, let me say this, too. I want to look at what I want to look at J.D. Vance's campaign in from a historic context. The truth of the matter is the only way that J.D. Vance would have won in Ohio was being the Trump guy. Do I think that justifies what he did? Absolutely not. But from a shrewd consultant point of view, if your only concern, Chris, was for him to win, you would have told him to do what he did because there's no way that you could win and not be super pro-Trump, right? It just There just wasn't a lane for him otherwise. Um, and if we, again, and I've used this, example before and people gonna hear me one of these days if you look at lyndon baines johnson if you look at jimmy carter these are people who as they were coming up through certain states were segregationists when they got in office one passed the civil rights act one did other things i say this only to put it in historical perspective to say keep your eye on people Because you never know if they were just being so shrewd to get where they were going to go and they're kind of going to change, even if their rhetoric doesn't. Or if they they really changed who they were just to get just to get in office. I I don't know the answer to that in regard to J.D. Vance. I don't think it justifies what he did. I think you got to represent what's right at all times. But from a very practical and shrewd, real politic point of view, it was the only way that he got in office. Same thing is is, is, could possibly be going on in, in Florida with DeSantis. There was no there was no lanes out of, out into Republican office that didn't run through Trump. And so the smart cats who I think lacked integrity jumped on that train and it's going to cost them. But but I still think we should keep an eye out to see on who are they outside of uh, Trump being Trump sycophants. Maybe that's a little too nuanced for some folks. But if you look at history, it's happened before. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, no, that's that's completely real. Um, I and I, I think that it's important for people to like play the roles that that they're called to play. I can tell you firsthand um, that doing the right thing, saying the right thing at any moment, no matter what, is, is not the most productive approach to an electoral campaign. It's not politically expedient. <laughs> um, you know, so I I think you know. That's why you need people doing different things uh, in in public life and not just running for a public office. You need people doing church politics podcast. Um, 
so, you know, that part is very important. And, and maybe this is uh, a, a move in that direction. And hey, maybe he can get, you know, what does he have? Two, uh, he has one other Republican, so they need eight more uh, in the Senate. Maybe he can uh, convince eight other Republican senators, um, you know, to to go along with him on this one. We'll see. I mean, hey, I will say the Republican and Democratic Party need more people who are going to push back against corporations just thinking they can run all over people, even after they have a crazy act. I mean, the, the idea that Norfolk Southern would push back against regulations after what just happened, it just shows you what, what precedents have been set and the expectation they have of the people who they give money to uh, yeah. in lobby. And if, if you're a free market capitalist, like do your thing, but don't let anybody convince you if you're a church politics podcast listener that putting regulations in place that say that train companies uh, have to have enough people on the trains and put safety mechanisms uh, on their physical infrastructure is socialism. That's not socialism. After uh, the government bailed you out. Right. That is that is uh, that's responsible government. And, and looking out for the welfare of the people, right? So people will argue that this is socialism, this is government takeover, government interfering with the markets, blah, blah, blah. Government is just standing up for the people if they pass this particular piece of legislation. In my opinion, not even enough, but certainly excited to see a bipartisan piece of legislation get some discussion uh, in the public discourse uh, and in the United States Senate. Hey, Chris, these microphones are on fire. This was a, a very good episode, man. Always a pleasure uh, to go back and forth with you. And Ancamp, I hope you enjoyed it. You know what it is. There's a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and want to surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ancamp. Well, I'll let you. Yeah, Lord.